Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, as we come to the end of a very long presidential election cycle, a cycle in which issues of race in America were sometimes part of the conversation and sometimes not, what can we do to remedy our legacy of racial injustice and move forward? UW professor Megan Ming Francis searches for answers to that question, sometimes to the point of frustration. We have a documented history in this country of state violence against black citizens, from slavery to reconstruction, to lynching, to Jim Crow, to civil rights, to post-civil rights era, to Hurricane Katrina, and yes, absolutely, Hurricane Katrina gets its own special call out, because it was this crazy moment, right, in American politics in which we actually like watched at some level, right? The state abandoned and leave black people to die on national television. Megan Ming Francis is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Washington and the author of Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State. She gave this talk, Race and Violence in American Politics, at UW's Kane Hall on October 12, 2016. Thank you to Sonia Harris for our recording. Here, UW professor George Lovell introduces Megan Ming Francis. Over the past few years, issues of institutionalized racism and organized violence directed at people of color have been forced into the public consciousness through a parade of truly horrific televised events. It's a path that starts around uh, Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Sarah Bland, Freddie Gray, Eric Garner. The list goes on and on, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. And then right now we have the whole country sitting on edge, anticipating the final weeks of an unfathomably ugly presidential election. We're coming together tonight as a community to hear a talk by a scholar, Professor Francis's caliber, and that will be an edifying and hopefully encouraging and helpful experience. I know that I'm very eager to learn from what Professor Francis has to say tonight. Now, one of the important things that I've learned from Professor Francis, having her as a colleague in political science, and from her illuminating and courageous scholarship, is that what is happening now is nothing new. In the US, people of color have known about problems of race, violence, and law enforcement for a long, long time. And they've also been courageously struggling for a long, long time to make that known and to make it stop. What's changed recently is not the number of black people being killed by police, but only that new cell phone camera technologies now make it much harder for people like me to ignore what people most impacted by those practices have been telling us for so long. And that's something to keep in mind as you get ready to listen to the amazing scholar and teacher who I have the honor of introducing to you tonight. Professor Francis's scholarship is important right now not just because her work uncovers past struggles that have been forgotten, but because it raises pressing questions of why change has taken so long. And yet at the same time, it inspires some realistic hope for change and for people making a difference. I urge each of you to listen and to learn with an awareness of your own position and privileges and a consciousness of an imperative to struggle toward understanding the experiences and histories of people situated differently from yourselves. Now, Professor Megan Ming Francis arrived at the University of Washington in fall 2014 
She's an assistant professor of political science. She earned her PhD from Princeton University and her BA from Rice University, also did postdocs at the University of Chicago and Indiana University School of Law. Her arrival here at the University of Washington campus was a return home. Professor Francis is originally from Seattle and is a proud graduate of Garfield High School. Yeah. <laughs> Princeton Schminston, Garfield. <laughs> We're very lucky to have her here. In just a little over two years, Professor Francis has established herself as one of the most popular and accomplished teachers in our department. She also serves as the field director for history and political development at the Washington Institute for the Study of Inequality and Race. On a larger scale, Professor Francis is establishing a national and really a worldwide reputation as the best scholar of race and constitutional development in a generation. Her research on the construction of rights and citizenship, black political activism, and the post-war civil self has been featured on w, uh, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, NPR, PBS, Newsweek, The Washington Post, The Seattle Times, and TEDx, among other outlets. She's also the author of the important and multiple award-winning book, Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State, which tells the story of how the NAACP's early campaign against state-sanctioned racial violence shaped both the American state and the modern civil rights movement. Please join me now in welcoming Professor Megan Francis. All right, does this work now? Am I on? Okay, cool. How's everybody feeling? Good, y'all look good tonight. All right, um, first I really wanna thank uh, Professor George Lovell for those very kind and generous words. Um, it's been, I think, so far, I've been, this is my third year, um, one of the greatest honors of my life to come back to Seattle to serve in this Department of Political Science and then also to serve in this university where I have so many amazing students. I want to acknowledge Yvette Moy and the staff from the Office of Public Lectures, the Graduate Alumni Office, and everyone who decided to spend part of their evening with me today. Thank you, I appreciate it. All right, I also, and this is gonna be my last thing, and then we're gonna launch into um, what, is, what is obviously a heavy topic here. Um, so my dad, dad, wave your hand, wave your hand, wave your hand. So yeah, yeah that's my dad, Horace Francis. So, yeah. It's also, just thank you so much. They, my parents were people that encouraged books my whole life. I just loved, loved, loved books. Um, and, and, and when I decided to pursue this crazy thing called a PhD, they didn't really understand. They're like, huh, what, more school, less money? And then books, boxes of books used to just arrive like when I was home for the holidays and they're like, more books? Still no money? But like, <laughs> but then it's really hard. That's a really hard idea for people of color. It's a really hard idea, right? Um, but they hung out and they believed in me and here I am. So I'm incredibly happy um, to be here. All right, so um, as Professor Lovell says, I am a graduate. Um, uh, of, of, of Seattle. I am a graduate and a proud, proud graduate of K through 12 Seattle Public Schools. I did my elementary work. Yeah, can I get a, all this public schools? Yeah, right? Like, come on, you know? All right. Um, 
I did my elementary work at TOPS, the option program at the time. It was at Stevens. While I was there, I developed a love for something called Where's Waldo Books. So we're, oh, we're going to, hold on. No, no, no. You guys are like, wait, what? I love it. That's not, definitely not. Crazy. All right, we're going we're gonna to roll with it this way. Okay, so who, uh, who here is like read, engaged with Where's Waldo books? All right, that's a lot, that's a lot. Okay, so for those who don't know or who've never read Where's Waldo books, um, what it is is there's these kind of hundreds of illustrations of people engaged in various activities. The goal of the reader is to find Waldo. Right, and so Waldo is a man, and he has a red and a white striped shirt, kind of looks like a candy cane. And you have to find him because he's somewhere in the mix. It's not always readily apparent, you know, but when you eventually find him, you realize that he's hanging out, he's chilling, having a good time. He's hiding at some level in plain sight. As long as you know to look for him, he's always there. I know you guys are like not paying attention to him anymore, right? Now. <laughs> It's okay. All right. There he is. You guys are like, I know, right? I know. Yeah, I know. It's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. The reason why I'm using Waldo as a way to enter into, I think, a very difficult topic is that many of the conversations I've had with well-meaning white people around the current state of racist violence has often made me feel like I'm in the most difficult Where's Waldo book. And what I mean by this, and it's, it's a, it feels like everyone else ignores Waldo and pays attention to everything else around. So for example, a conversation that I've had far too many times over the past three years, after every highly publicized police shooting, goes something like this. And it can happen over dinner, lunch. Normally, people call me on, on the phone, hey, Megan. Right. I'm so stressed out about watching the news. Can you believe the way the police killed? Right. Enter somebody's name, right? Alton Sterling, Philando Castle, Freddie Gray. And, and, I, and I pretty much always mutter something like, yeah, streets is crazy, right? Like, but, what I, but what I always want to say and, and kind of what I want to scream is, of course, I can believe it. For me not to believe it would mean that there, that there would have been a long period in American history in which black people were not being murdered by, by law enforcement officers, right? For me to believe it would mean that I would have to believe the violent killings of black people that are now on my TV and that have invaded my social media are not the norm that these things are aberrational, and that, that they're not a defining feature of American politics. But there has never been a long period in which black bodies have been safe. So why are we surprised now? Right. We have a documented history in this country of state violence against black citizens, from slavery to Reconstruction to lynching to Jim Crow to civil rights to post-civil rights era to Hurricane Katrina. And yes, absolutely, Hurricane Katrina gets its own special call out because it was this crazy moment right, in American politics in which we actually like watched 
at some level, right? The state abandon and leave black people to die on national television to now. It's always, racial violence has always been a part of the larger mural of American society. I don't remember growing up, even in as wonderful as a liberal place as Seattle in the 1980s. That's crazy, right? I know some of my students are like, what? Um, but I don't remember even growing up here with black people who were raised to feel always safe. Most black people that I know have been constantly aware of the fragility of black life, especially when it comes to interactions with law enforcement. However, most people, maybe not the people in this room, maybe, but many people have chosen not to see what has been hiding in plain sight for a very, very long time. People across this nation have paid more attention to the violence today. Of course, we know that because social media has amplified the violence and made it much more visible to us. But just because we didn't have Facebook live streams and body cameras before does not mean that African Americans have not faced high, high levels of racial violence. So today I want to focus on this violence against black bodies because I think that this is an area that we choose not to see because it doesn't easily collapse with our lofty visions of how we believe American democracy should operate. I want to suggest that the silence around the long history of violence and race in this country is a complicated story of well-intentioned individuals who are nevertheless responsible for the contemporary racial crisis. It's important to understand that we do not get to a world in which racial violence is no longer an issue by ignoring the power and persistence of racial violence throughout the long arc of history. So what do we see when we actually pay attention to black suffering? According to the most recent statistics, unarmed blacks are three times more likely to be killed by police than whites. The question on everyone's mind and the question that I get asked the most is how do we fix this problem? And I confess I cringe at this question, not because it's not a good question, but because I think we're asking the wrong question. I'm not convinced we even understand how we got to this point in the first place. Better understanding of the root causes, I think, will help us to figure out how we get out of it. I admit that I sometimes, oftentimes perhaps, am more eager to solve a problem than I am to understand it. A few years ago, I adopted, some of you guys know this because there are some people who I know up in here. Um, I adopted a corgi and I named him President Bartlett. <laughs> See, the people who just laugh, they gave away their age, right? Because my students, whenever I, President Bartlett is the president on the West Wing, he's my favorite president. And now when I show clips of the West Wing in my classes, they're like, ooh, our parents used to watch that. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. So President Bartlett, my corgi, is cute, is adorable, but he had been, look, what? I know, isn't that amazing? Okay. But he had been abused and was, and was very aggressive to other dogs. He would just go crazy at the sight of any dog that he saw. For the first year, my fix was to walk him at odd hours of the day. So I would straight up wake up 
at 3, 4 a.m. in the morning and walk with this little dog, just in, in hopes that, like, right, because rational thinking individuals do not walk their dog at 4 in the morning, right? Okay. This, of course, worked only marginally well, and I was stressed. The next year, I realized that I, that I needed a better long-term solution and decided to work with the trainer to figure out the root causes or the reasons behind his reactive behavior. On the first day of working with us, the trainer told me point blank, and I'll never forget this because it stuck with me, fixes that do not address the root causes of the problem are not really fixes at all. It was at this moment that I realized that in my rush to solve President Bartlett, I had actually made him worse. The contemporary crisis, I think, surrounding the killing of unarmed blacks suffers, I think, from a lack of understanding of the root causes. Better understanding the reasons behind why we are in the present state, I think, will help to shed light on what is needed to transform our society and move it forwards. All right, so why does police killing of unarmed blacks keep happening? Right. This is also the kind of the other big question here. I think it keeps happening because we have the wrong diagnosis and the wrong cure. What I mean by this is that we think the problem is that there are a few stubborn racists and that we think the cure, not all of us, but some of us, think the cure to most racial injustices is education. In the rest of my talk uh, today, I'm going to challenge these ideas and, and suggest a new way um, to understand the problem as well as the solution. First, part of the reason a police killing of unarmed blacks keep happening is because we have not properly wrestled with the long history of racial terror in this country, which has treated blackness as a substitute for criminality. Instead, what we like to do when we're confronted with the jarring racial injustices is to point to the bad racist apples, right? Like this, okay, cool. We like to individualize the problem and situate it away from us. This is why we're able to make sense of individuals like Dylan Roof, right, the, 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 the young man from Charleston, South Carolina, who had a white power manifesto. However, the problem of racial inequality is not that we have a few racist apples. I think this is a misdiagnosis. The problem I think, is that the whole tree is infected. The problem is that the presumption of dangerousness is tightly bound to race for so many in this country. For police officers to justify the use of deadly force, they have to reason reasonably believe that their lives are in danger. In all of the high-profile cases of police killings of unarmed blacks over the past year, officers attest to feeling under threat. But what does this mean in the context of unarmed citizens? It means that black skin triggers a heightened sense of threat, a life-threatening sense of threat for some people. And this perception of danger influences the decision to use deadly force. If all of the unarmed people shot and killed by police for the year 2015, 36% of them were black men, even though black men make up right now 6% of this nation's population. 
But it's not just police officers, and I want to be very clear about this, right? It's not just police officers that prop up this myth of black danger. The myth is reinforced and takes on a truth-like quality through everyday interactions. When a black man passes and a woman clutches her purse, or when a group of black teenagers pass a car and they hear the jarring sound of someone who has just pushed their automatic locks because they are afraid, right? And I've been with friends on both sides of this, black men after a long day at work, mostly in New York, who just want to go home and not be seen as a threat when they, as they leave. I've also been with, with, with white and Asian woman friends who clutch their purse and walk quickly when they see a black man on a dimly lit street and then feel ashamed and a need to overexplain their actions to me. A few times I've also been on the receiving end of having who I was reduced to someone else's false perception of how much of a danger I posed. A few years ago, I was coming back from a trip and was singled out by a TSA agent. I thought I had left a water bottle in my bag, as I so often do. But he ushered me to the side, and two other TSA agents surrounded me. And my gut told me that this was not a good thing. Um, the officer in charge started a series of questions accusing, uh, yeah, accusing me of bringing a weapon into the airport. When I insisted that I did not bring a weapon into the airport, he triumphantly produced a piece of costume jewelry, a double ring that I had picked up while I was on vacation for $4. It was his gotcha moment, and it was my very confused moment. It was at this point where he accused me of bringing brass knuckles, a deadly weapon, into the United States airport. I was almost at a loss of words, which my students know is rare for me. <laughs> So I politely pointed out that this ring was plastic, it was not brass, and these were not knuckles. It was a costume jewelry ring. But ever, have you ever talked to someone and felt like you didn't exist, like they saw right through you when they spoke to you? Well, that's how I felt. He grew more angry at my explanation and told me, you people always lie. I know that this is a weapon, and we're not going to let someone dangerous like you board a plane today. Well, at this moment, I started to get scared and started to shake, right? Because we've all seen this movie, and it never really ends well for the black person who walks into an airport with a weapon, right? It doesn't. It's horrible. So I had to do what I hate doing, and which I pretty much never do. I had to use my credentials to get me out of a very, very bad situation. I informed him, finally, that I was a professor um, who taught courses surrounding American politics and constitutional law, and that he could not legally detain me. Right? <laughs> and then he got nervous, because he still was like, it's just, it's like weird, it's right, like me and sweats and a hoodie and like, and looking younger, and it just like doesn't score with our perceptions of who should be professors and who should not, right, okay. So then he got nervous, and he asked what university I worked at, as if that, if that would be like his, like, I knew she was lying. So I told him, and on his TSA iPad, he Googled my name, and then the blood drained from his face as he realized I was indeed a college professor, I wasn't making any of this up, and I probably knew my rights really well. <laughs> and then when he looked back at me, he finally saw me, not as a dangerous threat, but as a person deserving of rights. 
After a few more minutes, he finally let me go to catch my very delayed flight. I was still trembling with rage at the way that I had been treated. I finally uh, found a seat in the airport terminal, and I felt a tap on my shoulder. A woman airport worker said that he always does this to black passengers, and that I was lucky to have been released from his custody so quickly. But it shouldn't take a university website profile to be viewed as non-threatening. That's far too high, and that's a ridiculous bar. I share this story because in talking about the present racial crisis, we tend to focus on the police and ignore our own complicity in creating an environment in which black lives are not treated as equal. To be clear, people always say, how do you feel about body cameras? I'm in favor of body cameras. I'm in favor of a, of a non-militarized police force. I'm in favor of better laws that make police more accountable when they stop and frisk individuals on the street. But I'm not convinced that we would need something like body cameras if we didn't live in a society, a society, not just a police department, in a society that treated blacks as suspicious and dangerous first and as citizens second. It's not just, right, it's not just a few bad apples in a police department or at an airport. It's all of us who in small ways, through our silences, in big ways, through our actions, support this lie that somehow black folk are just more dangerous than the rest of us. So not only do I believe that we've misdiagnosed kind of the current problem right now, I think we also have the wrong solution or cure. We keep offering up education as a solution to racial injustice in the United States. It's as if, and this is something from my mom that she always used to do, it's as if education has become kind of the Robitussin of civil rights, right? When I was younger and my mom, she's, I mean, it's just, I just never, and she still does actually, it's not even when I was younger, like still now. It was Robitussin, like, oh, you have a flu, Robitussin cold, Robitussin cold, like, it just doesn't do all these things. And I understood that <laughs> finally, right, when I got older. <laughs> But just like Robitussin is not a cure-all for all types of sicknesses, education, despite us being in this wonderful university, is not a cure-all for all of America's racial sins. And yet education is still at the center of how most Americans conceive as a solution to what is going on right now. It's amazing. In terms of education, is the, that, that is the promise and the responsibility of civil rights. Our measure of how far we have come in the area of, of race relations is often calculated in how integrated our schools are, how, how many federal dollars are devoted to education, and how many exciting, innovative experiments are being funded by private foundations. But the problem of police killings of unarmed blacks in this country does not boil down to a solution of greater educational opportunities. A book is not going to stop the bullet barreling through the gun at Rakia Boyd in Chicago. And longer classroom times are not going to save Freddie Gray from being stop, illegally stopped and then manhandled by police in Baltimore. This is what I know for sure, that in order to effectively combat persisting racial injustices, we must expand our vision of civil rights to include and prioritize the battle against racist violence. Instead of education, what if we place freedom from racial violence at the crux 
of what it means to achieve equal citizenship in this country. Doing so does not mean that we dislodge education. It does not denigrate the importance of education today. It means that we acknowledge the long history of institutionalized violence against black people and make this issue central to dismantling racism in this country. It means that addressing racial violence against black people is the precursor to, to other rights that we cherish. I know that what I'm proposing, this idea like, all right, well, how am I going to look? Okay, is not an easy task, but I know that it can be done. Public policymakers and individuals increasingly talk about the Black Lives Matter movement as if this project is a new one, but it's not. I'm a political scientist and a closeted historian, and I've spent the last 10 years focused on a surprising finding. Before the NAACP focused on their historic battle against segregated education, they spent two decades in the early 20th century exposing the dangerous levels of racial violence endured by African Americans, by police officers, by politicians, and by private white citizens. I chronicle this work in my first book, Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State. The book is trying to make a claim about how black citizens constructed civil rights and American politics in the darkest of times. Before Brown v. Board of Education, at the height of lynchings, abandoned by both national parties, and decades before the sit-ins and the heyday of the civil rights movement, how did the NAACP organize in a political environment that did not treat black people as equal citizens? In order to fight and to challenge the environment at the time, the NAACP organized mass demonstrations, lobbied Congress to pass a federal anti-lynching bill, and petitioned two different United States presidents to make a statement against lynching. And then kind of a, the book culminates in this big landmark Supreme Court case decided in 1923 called Moore v. Dempsey, in which this is going to be the first time in which the Supreme Court kind of federal intervention in state criminal trials. It was a case in, involving 12 African-American men who were railroaded to death in Arkansas. And the Supreme Court is going to say in this case that mob-dominated trials right, are unconstitutional. You guys are like, of course, right? But like, this, is, and this, this, this was an important first step. For the NAACP at the time, Morvey Dempsey made, at least for them, a, a sign that the federal government had not forgotten them. It was this massive, extraordinary, in-your-face campaign that forced America to confront lynching and mob violence against African Americans. It asked America how strong was its commitment to protecting black lives. When concern was raised at a meeting by another white board member, the NAACP's agenda was not broad enough. There was concern, right, that it, that it didn't also address other areas that we now associate with civil rights, such as education, voting, and housing, because at the time, the NAACP was very much focused on this issue of racial violence. Roy Nash, an African-American who was part of the NAACP's leadership, attempted to explain the organization's focus on racial violence. And he says here, and this is a quote, all the, all the Negro wanted was a chance to live without a rope around his neck, end quote. 
It was a sobering but necessary reminder that if the protection of black lives was not secured, everything else would mean very, very little. As a result of the NAACP's organizing in the first quarter of the 20th century, the rates of lynching and mob violence dramatically decreased. Much research in political science looks to institutions and elite actors in government to explain dramatic shifts in political and constitutional development over time. The NAACP's movement against racial violence tells a different story. It suggests, I think, that bottom-up protests can meaningfully change the actions taken by political institutions and make government more accountable to its citizens. The key takeaway from my research, and I think how it pertains to what's going on right now, is that protest is necessary to reduce racial violence. What I have up here is this is actually the, a picture that's the part of the cover of my book. This is a protest. It's called the Silent Protest March. Um, this was done down Fifth Ave in New York City in 1917. There's different groups. The men are walking in one section. The women are walking in another section. The kids are walking in another section. What they are doing is here in this, in this protest march to, to protest the level of mob violence and lynchings and violence against blacks across the country to raise attention to this, right? To get in the streets and to, and to make people look. I share this story about the NAACP's campaign against racial violence because I believe that our past history can light a way out of the present darkness. If we listen to what this history teaches us, then we must struggle through it. We must urgently confront the ways in which our actions and our institutions led to a discriminatory treatment of blacks, even perhaps precisely if it's intentional. I'm persuaded that an equal society, that a just and a democratic society, means that we address this country's long legacy of racial violence and discriminatory treatment of blacks in an honest way that does not conceal our own complicity. Today, many people across the United States are, are taking to streets and are demanding to be seen not as dangerous, but as people whose lives have meaning and deserve protection. Some of their groups are associated directly and some indirectly with the Black Lives Matter movement. Without these efforts, so many of these killings would have been swept under the rug, and the public would have lost interest long ago. But the fact that we're talking about it today, the fact that presidential candidates, no matter how painful that was to watch, are discussing police violence in the inner city on national <laughs> television, <laughs> owes to the hard work of so many. I do remember many presidential debates where like, race doesn't even come up. So I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement has released a set of policy demands at the end of the summer. It's an ambitious and a beautiful statement about what black freedom, what black liberation might look like. But if I know anything about struggles in this country, I know that these courageous activists cannot go at this alone. Their message and my message to you is in part that we must pay attention to how black people are treated. The stories of police brutality and killings of unarmed blacks is not a story about black people. It's a story about all of us. It's a story about racial progress and the stubborn durability 
of American racism. It's about if we will stop committing the mistakes of our past and confront our own responsibility and the great American lie about black dangerousness. And finally, it's about if we have the courage to take a collective stand against persisting racial injustice. I want to end um, on, on a very brief story, a personal story, about the importance of history to understanding the contemporary situation. Um, so when I was at Princeton, Cornell West, people are familiar, maybe, hopefully. OK, all right, cool. So Cornell West was one of my mentors when I was in graduate school there. He used to always tell his students um, to be penetrating in our interrogation of American history and to always ask what truths are missing. So what that this book says this, what truths are missing? Professor West consistently railed against a tidy version of civil rights, what he termed a romanticized, sanitized, deodorized civil rights. This is a lot of, I can't even invoke him, but I'm trying, OK? <laughs> He wanted us to pay attention to the messiness, to the funk. That's always what he was always talking about, the funk. For it was in the funk that he believed the real truth was to be found and then wrestled with. So I'll never forget, because he was a fourth reader on my dissertation, so he didn't read every draft. When I finally completed my dissertation, I sent him a copy. And I'll never forget, I was at Princeton, and then I hear him across the quad, Sister Megan. And I'm like, all right, all right, OK. So I like, go over there. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, Professor West, how's it going? And he was like, I read your dissertation. He was like, you did good. You finally found the funk. So <laughs> yeah, you did, right? So then, because I really want to do this, I'm going to do this. And then we're going to end here. Okay, cool. All right, thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. All right. Okay, so I'm gonna be, or Rosina is, or I'm, I'm, I can take questions. Yeah. Okay. So, so if you have any questions, um, you can come to either of the two microphones um, to ask, ask Professor Francis. She doesn't need me up there at all. But I will start off with a first question. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about your research on the NAACP's early history of the protection of black lives and what lessons we could use today from that history. Great. Thank you, Relina. Um, so I, I think there's a, I, I think, I mean, because obviously I spent a lot of time on this. I think there's a lot. But I'm going to try to focus on, I think, two lessons, one about what they did well and then one about my critique. So one, I think what they did well is they fought on multiple institutional fronts. Oftentimes when I teach, uh, when I talk about to my students about how do we fight contemporary injustices, they're like, the Supreme Court. They did Brown, right? And so that's some students. Other students are like, get in the streets. Um, the NAACP, at least in this early period, really, really, truly believed that there wasn't kind of a, a like one way in which you fight for rights. They fought on multiple institutional fronts in the streets in the presidency, in Congress, and in the courts, right? And so when sometimes when people look at and are trying to evaluate what's going on right now around the Black Lives Matter movement, they're like, this is crazy. It's never going to happen. But 1909 and 1916 were crazy times, right? Those were, at some level, crazier times. And they were still able to make very important breakthroughs. So I do think it's important to fight on multiple institutional fronts. 
Um, I think that's a big, big lesson um, here. I think that a lot of, at least a lot of the energy has focused on what is going on in the ground. And that is legit, totally important. But we got to kind of get involved, I think, in politics a little bit more. At the same time, I understand the caution around that, right? For those who saw, right, the DCCC the, the memo that came out where they were like, keep the Black Lives Matter protesters at bay, right? The Democrat Party is like, um, So I do understand that concern. Um, one other quick, I think, takeaway from the NAACP's campaign against racial violence in the first quarter of the 20th century. Of course, right, the question is, well, what happened? <laughs> right, why, why do we understand them as an organization that is very much focused on education and voting? And I think part of one of the lessons I think you can take away from that, I think there was a misstep that happened at the end of the 1920s and, and, and in the 1930s. Um, so, and this is something, a project that I'm working at looks at or examines the, the role of foundations and funders in co-opting different rights organizations, right? And so um, there's, an, or there's a big funder that comes on board uh, in the beginning of the 1930s, and that, in my opinion, shifts the organization, NAACP's attention away from racial violence to education. Not that education is not a radical issue, but I do think that there's something going on there. And that I often worry or, or think about in the contemporary moment as a lot of funders have approached different Black Lives Matter affiliated groups here, right? And what's the role of these individuals? And how do we make sure these organizers' voices are ultimately heard? Um, all right, so do I just do this? Hey, how's it going? Hi. Hi, what's your name? Uh, Matt. Matt, hey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's like, hey. Yeah. Um, in the Black Lives Matters uh, list of things that they would like to see occur, could you go through each of those uh, briefly oh. for us and oh. talk a little bit about? Oh my goodness! Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! You're uh, you're gonna. So this is probably they're gonna do this far better than I do. So what I'm gonna try to say is a bit about a tiny bit about each one. Um, so political power is a big one in terms of wanting to focus on the political establishment and that in order to advance forward for this movement around black lives that we need to focus on also black political power. There's also when they, if you go to this website, I think it's fantastic. I, for, each of these, for each of these, there's, there's about 10 sub bullets too, right? So one of the issues around political power is also the release of political prisoners. That's also, I think, incredibly important. Uh, community control is going to be an important one around if we think about um, education and schools and who controls what in particular communities. Um, economic justice, and so I think this is, a, a, they're all really important. But a lot of right now scholarship and work in the media has focused on kind of the ravages of, of, of of, of predatory capitalism. So when we think about economic justice here, right, Wells Fargo, right? So a lot of in terms of what, what is going on around the violation um, of different communities, invest and divest in terms of wanting to actually focus on why do we send money to particular, to particular organizations or particular government agencies and not others, right? Um, I think one of the things that I've always wondered is if, if we take Seattle, right? Um, one of the things I was always aware of, Garfield looks pretty nice now. 
Garfield did not always look nice, right? My peoples who went there right in the 90s, yeah, I see, yep. Um, but the, some schools got remodeled and some schools didn't, right? Seemingly for us, it, it's, it often seemed that Rainier Beach, Cleveland, and Garfield didn't get remodeled, right? It often seemed to us that Ballard and Roosevelt did. Why? Um, another, in terms of invest and divest, is a, I think a concern about what happens to communities that don't have economic power. So why do some neighborhoods get torn up because of light rail and why do some others not, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah I got an amen there, okay. Uh, <laughs> reparations is gonna be, I think this is huge, right? So thinking of longer in terms of what is owed to black people, I didn't even get in that, that's a whole another lecture, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then end the war on black people. The thing I'm going to focus on there, I, I wrote a, a, a blog post about this, um, is a, a focus on surveillance. So there's a di a different ways in which w w the state and or private organizations and or private individuals wage war on black communities, right? And so one of the things uh, that I focus on in this blog piece um, was about, um, and I have a few civil liberties students in here, um, but in terms of different types of spy techniques that have been specifically focused on demonstrators outside of Ferguson and, inside of, and outside of Baltimore. Um, and so there's been, a, that's an interesting t kind of phrasing here. But thank you. Is there nobody over here? Y'all? Nobody? Oh, hey. I got one. Hello, Megan. Hi. Um, Kevin. <laughs> I might know a few people up in here. My question is, uh, how do you combat people's assumptions of black skin equating threat, uh. or people's, often white people's, denial of persistent racism in the country in communities which do not include black people, uh. and their only exposure to black people uh. is through television and media? Oh, man. Kevin, I should not have, you should have just sat down. <laughs> so... That's tough. I, I, I think. I mean, it's really important. I don't have the perfect answer for that, right? So, I, in in terms of, that's tough. I, I'm not a big fan of like let's sit and discuss things for 16 hours, right? I'm not a huge fan of let me do the service to make you learn more about me to appreciate me as a human. I'm really not interested in that project, because the, the 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 onus on understanding that I, and, and understanding my humanity should not be on me. Right, like I want to be very clear about that. I, 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 I wanted to speak a little bit about. <laughs> I did want to speak a little bit about the individuals responsible for repairing racial harms now, because I do think um, it's, it's interesting that the people at the forefront, and I'm happy about this, um, are, are, are are black people, um, and not that there's not white, Asian, Native. Latino, like, like there's clearly people who are supporting this, but in terms of who's leading that. But I often sometimes wonder about, are we asking too much? For people who've already experienced loss, is this an unfair burden to also place on them to repair the wrongs, right? I, sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I do know, I was asked to do a bit of press this summer around um, a number of the killings that happened, and I said no to everything. Because um, I think the only press I did, Dan Berger's in the back, a great history professor at UW Tacoma. Um, I did this blog about an African American history blog. Um, that's the only thing kind of publicly that I wrote, in part because I came five and see how time they wanted me to explain what happened. Like, why do black people, why are black people upset in Dallas? What? That is that is crazy. I like, I'm not really. 
I'm really not interested in using my labor. But at the same time, I do think it's important. Right? I, I also don't want to, I don't want to take away the importance of trying to figure out how do we coalition build for a better future. Because I do think that's important. Um, I don't have the best answers for that. I do hope that, 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 that people who are unsure of other people, I'm just using these words, um, <laughs> do some personal inflection. But I don't, I'm, I'm not, maybe like 10 years ago, I would have been like, yo, what we need to do is we need to spin a circle. And then we need to talk about our, our, our backgrounds, right? And then maybe you'll see me as a person. But I don't do that now. I don't, that, no. Sorry, that, that didn't fully answer your question, Kevin. But you know. I mean, to, uh, the, the last part of your question, though, is a good one about how do you change people's perceptions who, who really have very, very little interaction with black people? Now, I don't know what to do about, let's say, cities and their geographic locations. I do have a lot of friends who are parents who live in areas in which there's not a lot of people of color around them. And so a question often comes up about, but I don't want my kid just to see all white kids. What playgrounds exist, right? What other, what other opportunities are there out there for my kids to meet other types of people? And I think that everybody should engage in that. I think that's a, I think that's a harder process. I think that takes you actually thinking and valuing not even diverse, diversity. I'm kind of also, that's like, I'm not supposed to say that because I'm here, right? So like, not the word diversity. But valuing <laughs> other people. All right. OK. Oh, thanks for being here, What's Professor. Name? My name is Enrico. I'm Enrico. With, actually with Professor Danberger up there. Hey, hey. In, in our, our hey, class. hey, UWT. Um, I see you. UW Bothell. The Bothell. Excuse Bothell. you. <gasps> oh, my gosh. So crazy. Y'all just let me ride out like that? Nobody wanted to say anything? Oh, my goodness. Well, UW Bothell. You okay, hitting the house. I see you guys. Okay. So my question, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to phrase it, really. But, um, you know, in your historical sort of analysis and, and bringing into the present moment of the NAACP, uh, for us, understanding the NAACP as a very, a, an organization with history, an organization that demands respect, an organization that in many cases, parents and, and other organizations turn to. And we're wondering, you know, for Black Lives Matter here in this moment with the explosion of social media and uh -huh. the explosion of hyper-surveillance, uh -huh. I wonder if you can speak to maybe how we as students and uh -huh. also some of us who aren't, you know, currently in school, place ourselves in resistance to racialized surveillance. And I use the word racialized in, in an attempt uh, to claim that it's a process, uh, an active engagement. Oh, that is such a good question. I don't have a perfect answer for that. No, no, come back here, come back here, come back here. Come back, you can't just stay. No, we're gonna have a, we're gonna have a, like a very brief conversation okay. here, just in front of just okay. you and I. Okay. No, 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 no. Stay, stay there, 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 so I, so I can hear you. Okay. All right. So, 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 so this is a question about concerns about surveillance of 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 young people who are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, and how do you position yourself in opposition to? Clarify for me. Okay, so for example, right, um, you spoke earlier about 
how in our contemporary day and age, a lot of the violence against uh, black communities and black bodies in particular has been magnified, amplified, and directed uh -huh. to our public gaze. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. equally important uh -huh. then is if we feel uh -huh. very strongly that as citizens and as human beings that we uh -huh. should do something about that, uh -huh. that in turn, gives us the, the sort of a motive to ask how can we use those forms of media uh. against itself to subsume that hyper surveillance in a way that becomes resistance oh. in a way that that undermines power in a productive manner oh, not yeah. necessarily in a way that's been done over and over again oh that's good I don't, I don't, I just, I, I like want to talk to you more. Um, no, we're not going to, I don't have, the, I don't have a perfect answer to this at all. I love this idea. I've actually, this, I mean, again and again, I love teaching. I always consider myself a student because I learn so much. I've never actually phrased it like that. I love it. We could write a paper together. I love it. I don't have, a, I don't have a perfect answer. Thank you for the question and for giving me something more no to worries. think about, though. Thank you. You're a buffalo. <laughs> I see you. I see you. I see you. Hey, what's your name? Uh, good evening. I'm Queen Pearl. And uh, I wanted to uh, just speak uh, to the situation at hand. I feel like w uh, the situation is very severe. And I wanted to thank you for sharing because I've had many experiences that look like the airport. <laughs> with myself uh -huh. and other people that I know that are on the front line every day. Uh, but moving right along, uh, black lives do matter. Uh, we have always mattered. I, yeah, I saw the birth of the nation. And so my situation now is uh, they're celebrating a lot of this 50th year anniversary, Black Panther, black Panther Party, help me, help me. <laughs> I'm asking for God's help on tonight because mm -hmm, I see something. And um, Dr. King's uh, mission in life in terms of uh, uh, this we shall overcome thing. And so I'm trying to figure this thing out because a bill was signed as far as the civil rights issue, uh, but yet and still we're out in the streets talking about Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! And I'm like, hey, what's up with this? I'm not saying we, we have a right to protest. But I'm saying we're actually out in the street telling people that we matter. In spite of the fact that we have, we have uh, Malcolm X is dead, and Shona Freddie is dead too, huh? And that's the question that I'm asking. When they say, where do we go from here? I think he asked that question too, Dr. King. Uh -huh. So I'll, I'll leave that up to you because you're the lecturer on tonight. <laughs> In your own way, where do we go from here? Because they're already out in the streets. Huh? No, I think it's I think it's tough. Um, <laughs> and Trent, thank you very much for your question uh, and the observation here. And so, one of the things I think you touch on that is so important is the deep, deep, deep frustration about doing work and organizing in this moment and being a black person in this moment, right? Again, whether it, it is about kind of this notion about there's people in the street telling folk that black lives matter, right? That, that, that's at some level amazing and crazy, horrific, 
horrible at the same time, right? We debate, I mean, I've, I've turned on, there, was, there were times this summer and there's been times in previous years where I've had to turn off the TV because I can no longer sometimes deal with people talking about killing people, right? Like, and under, what are the conditions under which, right? The toy gun, did he, did he like, like did, did people talk back? Did somebody misbehave in their cell? Like, this is, the, I mean, it's, it's kind of this weird deja vu, especially, I feel like, for many people who've been here before. So to this question about where do we go from here, if I had the perfect solution, I'd like, you know, I would be in the White House right now. But I'm not, so I'm here. But at least from my perspective, I think that we re-energize the struggles that we've, already, that, that we've already done and we stay focused. I think one of the big issues that comes up, and I love that I actually left this slide, so thank you to the gentleman, um, is one of the things I, I, I think that we always need to focus on is work in the streets and to not take our eyes off the things that matter to us most. I do worry that there was, in the 50s and 60s and the 70s, there was a belief that, right, that if we got education and if we got voting and if we got the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65, then everything else would follow. Then, of course, you would protect black lives, and that has not happened, right? So I do think that there's a need to focus on multiple moving goals at the same time. I know who I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so my question was um, how we should be conceptualizing racial violence. I mean, so uh, violence uh, can happen quickly uh, or it can happen very slowly, uh, right? Uh -huh. So preschool black boys uh, being treated uh, as more aggressive. Yeah. People who yeah. aren't killed by police but are incarcerated and kept in prison for long periods of yeah. time. Yes. Women left behind to take care yes. of the families yes. when those people are incarcerated. Yes. yes. And so should we, as you know, in terms of as in academics, but also as people who are wanting to um, lead pro in protest or try to change political uh -huh. structures, be thinking more broadly about how we think about racial violence yes. and what it is. Yes. And of course, killing is really important, but what else? And right. can we use your same frames to, to, to combat against these other kinds of violence that are happening to the black community? So I love this question. I'd like, that's not a plan, I promise. Um, so, so the way in which I actually conceive of violence is much broader, right? So I talk about in this lecture, in part because of everything, that's what gets the most attention, right? But the way that I conceive of violence, and this is why I like love this, because it's, I, I, at some level, violence is conceived more broadly, right? Broad violence is conceived of the, I think that at some level, gentrification, what's going on in the city, I think that's violent for some people, right? I think in terms of the, I think, school structure, I think having police officers in, in, especially in elementary school, I think that's violent, right? I think that some of the videos that we've seen about the way that black boys and girls are treated in elementary school, I think that's violent. I think the way that black and brown immigrants are treated is violent, yeah. right? I, there's, I, 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 think it's, I think it's broad, but I think it's all important, right? I think each of these things about kind of, of, uh, kind of predatory capitalism, I think, is violent um, as well. I, but I do think it's important to think about it broadly. Um, in terms of the frame of what I'm talking about, yes, absolutely. This, I mean, I, I think oftentimes people don't pay attention unless marginalized groups bring it to them. At the same time, my comment over here to, to, to Kevin, I still feel conflicted, right, about this idea that the people who've suffered the most harm should be the ones to bear the burden of raising the call for justice. So I, I, 
I do think that there still is kind of in the framework that I have, which is organizing people on the ground and pushing against different political institutions, for sure. Absolutely. I think that's the only way that we're going to change things. By the way, Hedy has amazing work in thinking about like health disparity in prisons and who gets what. It's great. Okay. <laughs> Professor in sociology, you should take your class. All right. Hey. Hi. How's it going? Going good. Good, good. to see you. <laughs> I have this question about um, the uh, kind of the conflict between sort of the old school uh, civil rights uh, leaders and ooh. the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. So you, know, you saw what Andrew Young called okay. uh, some protesters unlovable little brats. And at the opening of Selma, Oprah said, I hope they watch, a mo uh, watch this movie so they can get some focus and know what to do. So they seem to be more focused. So it seems like a lot of these old school, you know, 1960s type are more focused on their own legacy and would rather see this movement fail because it's not doing on their oh. terms and oh. their way and the right way and this internet computer thing that y'all like so much <laughs> and not, you know what I'm saying, instead of, right, so it's like they're, and, and you know, let's keep it real, not being done in the church the way that it was uh, in their day uh. versus how it is now. Yeah. So I just wonder if you think that part, some of the part of the problem is, or, or what do you think of if, uh, how, I guess, the uh, old school civil rights leaders are, I guess, in a way, hurting the new uh, Black Lives Matter movement? Well, I, I, you got a whole lot of amens. Um, I feel like I'm in like a Baptist church up here. Okay. Uh, so I, I, think, I think that's one of the fascinating, kind of like complicating aspects that is super exciting, right? So when I said um, so much that the Black Lives Matter movement is, is, is not new, it is new in a lot of ways. And I think in really exciting ways in the notion about changing in terms of, one, sites of protest and organizing, right? Um, as well as who can be leaders, right? And so the notion that we have in terms of like women, queer women, at the at the head of that, and that it's it's a, but it's a bit more complicated. I think it is really exciting. In terms to your question, so I talked about the NAACP in 1919. What is it? 1916. By the way, it has been 100 years. I, I hope people caught that, right? That it's been 100 years since we've been in this struggle and more, obviously. Um, but I talk about the NAACP in this period. I don't really, the NAACP right now is a bit different. I mean, there's probably a few people up in here who are like hard-carrying members. I apologize. It's a bit more, right? So the NAACP as an organization, like most organizations will do, is going to change over time. It does amazing work, especially around death penalty litigation right now, and especially around registering people to vote. I don't want to get confused about that. But there was a moment in the 60s and 70s when the NAACP got concerned about respectable black folk. Oh, y'all. <laughs> right? So there was a concern about wanting to move, like, who will be the face of our cases, right? And looking for respectable plaintiffs, right? And who is respectable? Respectable is not the single mom, right? No, 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 no. Right? Respectable is, is, is right? It's a two parent household. Respectable, right? So there's all these notions. Um, in terms of the NAACP isn't that organization right now, but it's not the radical organization that it was in the beginning of the 20th century. In terms of old goals, I do think that sometimes, and I worry in terms of leadership who get so stuck and believe that their way always has to be the right way. I do think that there has been a problem. I think, I think the movement would be more powerful right now, right? If some of the, if more, there has, there's some, but if more of the old guard would come on board, 
right? I think one of the most exciting things about this generation of activists is they've like basically said, your respectability po politics, you're wearing a tie, you're pulling up your pants, it's not working because black people are still getting killed. Right? It has said that time and time again, right? That this notion about go to church, do this, get this degree, like that, it still is not going to lead to freedom. Right? I, so there is a notion, and I love that. Like, I don't care. Like, people, the activists are out there in jeans. I mean, you can wear suits, that's okay, you know? But like in jeans, sagging, I love it, I don't care, right? But that are, but that are saying that even if, even if I do this, they still won't treat me ass. So how about we don't start from a place of you, I should earn, I, I should dress this way or act this way to earn your respect, to earn to be treated as a human. How about we just start there from the beginning? And I think there's a, I think there's a lot of power to saying that. I, I do think the old guard has been revered, right, revered. Um, and, I, and I do think that there's, some people are getting better at it. John Lewis is getting a little better on it. Now he ain't great right now, but he's getting better, better at it, right? Um, so I do think it will take much more interaction and talking um, about what's going on. It is the case that a lot of these leaders are on, you know, are always on a speaking circuit and they've gotten kind of comfortable and they are not as attuned to what is going on in marginalized black communities today. Real quick, Yvette, how much time do I have? Do I have five, ten minutes? How much time? Ten more minutes. Ten more minutes. Okay, cool. Hey. Hi, I'm Steve. Hey, Steve. I long preceded you at Stevens. Oh, my goodness. And my, both of my children walked in the footprints you left behind. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I want to go to sort of the other side of the coin of Kevin's question. Yeah. And what can be done, you know, what needs to be done to address the fear among those who are encountering blacks uh. all the time, uh -huh. particularly among the police? Oh. Uh, so in terms of police officers specifically or other, let's say, white or other people? Well, and particularly going back to just the killing of blacks, the police, um, you know, I think there's a lot of fear that's contributing, like the, I don't remember the name of the man who was killed in the Twin Cities area. He told the police, at least it was reported, he told the police, I have a gun, I have a permit, you know, and I think it raised, instead of hearing what the man was saying or what he was being told, he just immediately responded in fear that he was, his life was under threat because this guy had a gun. Uh -huh. how, how do we address that? How does society address that to overcome uh -huh. that fear among those people who are you know, so frequently in contact with blacks? So and this is good. Um, that's a really tough, but it's an important question. Um, I don't think enough people in places of power and law enforcement organizations ask that question. I think part of getting better um, in terms of policing comes down to well, uh, a, number, a number of things. One, to engage with members of community around important decisions, I think, is huge. Um, New York, for some people are familiar, New York City 
Um, I, then of course, it's been in, it's been in the, the election. Stop and frisk in New York City, right, in terms of the federal case that came down that said that they needed to reform the way in which they actually practiced stop and frisk because it was racially discriminatory. And so now one of the reforms for NYPD um, is, the, is, the, is at the same time um, this community group. It's called, I think it's Communities for Change. Um, and so in thinking about new policies around when I, I have big problems with this, as my students know, around like stopping individuals on the street, there now is what they term as community input into these policies, right? And so oftentimes what happens is that individuals go into these communities, they don't know these communities at all, they don't know who the leaders are, they don't know who people are, they don't know who people's, where people go to church, where people go to eat. I think that's, I think that's something that's key. Um, so I think, I mean, I'm, I'm, this is a long way to say that I believe better training would help around that. I think community input is key. I think many communities justifiably believe that the police are the enemy because of the way in which that they've been treated over time. And so part of demystifying that, or at least not making it seem so much as the case, is to actually engage with community members in a way that, it, that is non-adversarial. Um, and I think that could go a long way. But that's just a small step. A lot more needs to be done. Thanks, Steve. Let me go over here. Good evening. I'm Latasha Lee. Hey, Latasha. Thank you for your talk. Um, I've been teaching in, about Black Lives Matter, and actually the NAACP as well as the origins of Black Lives Matter. But I want to push back on this, um, this issue of fear. Uh -huh. Because if you look at any number of these situations, George Zimmerman did not fear Trayvon Martin. He was trying to control him. The police officer's encounter with Sandra Bland, he obviously did not fear her. He tried to control her. When Eric Garner was talking about this stops today, he was put in a chokehold because he asserted himself to say, You're not, you do this to me all the time, this stops today, and he mm -hmm. died. They mm -hmm. weren't afraid of Freddie Gray. Mm -hmm. You know, so this isn't about fear. And mm. with their officers are now allowed to use fear as a cover for their, whatever it is, disdain for their um, need to, uh, to feel powerful. So this is about power, it's about them asserting their authority and they're able to get away with it because of this argument of fear. And even though we recognize how uh, legislation has not helped us to get free, I'm wondering if you've been thinking about it all, and I haven't, it's just been something that um, I've seen just one of my elders bring up quite a bit is the um, Supreme Court decision of Graham versus Connor. Um, this was apparently a Supreme, Supreme Court decision in 1989, whereas it sort of um, gives police officers or law enforcement um, a, a, a way out in these interactions with uh, citizens to say they, could, they were justifiable in using excessive force. Uh, because they feared, because there was a threat. And so even though I, I typically um, reject um, the idea that all of our, we have to put all of our energies in changing the law, I'm wondering, have you seen, um, even as I've been t uh, paying attention to Black Lives Matter and the movement for black lives, that seems to be a missing piece um, in terms uh -huh. of actually addressing Graham versus Connor, uh -huh. um, which a lot of these officers are, um, pulling from to justify uh, their actions. So uh, I just wondered if you have something um, to say about that and then to also just just 
you know, drop the bucket on the fear thing oh, to a certain right. extent. Of course, people are afraid, yeah. you know. But in most of these, these instances, this is about the black body being out of control, being out of bounds, um, being out of place, you know. And so I just wanted to add that. No, thank you. So this is good. So I, so, yeah. So I do think that's huge here, right? In terms of, especially if we think about the history of black people in this country. And I, you know, I often do think though, so I, I, think, I think control and power over one's body is, is, is incredibly important in thinking about slavery and then kind of the period around lynching, right? There wasn't necessarily a fear, not necessarily all of them, but for some of them. But I do think sometimes, well, I actually think oftentimes they're intertwined in different ways. Um, I do think um, that fear does play a role in some of the interactions. I do think control does as well. I don't know how to parse out what is, what kind of what's driving what right now. I, I just haven't really thought through that. But I do think that it's, an, I think that's another important aspect to think about in terms of what is going on, especially in thinking about why are so many of the individuals who have been killed young, right? I, do, I, think, that's, I think that's key here. Um, in terms of this case, I actually am not familiar with it. I'm super curious now. Um, but I do think around kind of areas of the law and like what's going on right now, I think that there's a, a big opening of things that could actually happen around the ways in which the law could be useful. I'm not yet sure how, though, but thanks. Hey. Um, so you talked earlier about like how technology and social media have kind of technology, yeah, yeah. <laughs> have exposed um, like police brutality and like on a huge scale recently. And I was just wondering, kind of like how you would like how to negotiate sort of the huh. large impact that you know seeing these images has on terms of bringing police brutality uh -huh. um, into like you know, conversation, but also like seeing black bodies be abused uh -huh. on your timeline uh -huh. unsolicitedly, uh -huh. like how, I don't know, where you think, like to draw those lines or reconcile that. I've tried to think through that. I don't have a perfect response to that. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be honest with you. Um, in part, I have a number of friends who have taken explicit stands about not wanting to repost particular videos, right, in terms of, of, of um, of black death as a way they think it's kind of in terms of um, like black death porn. Um, and, I, and, I, and I very much respect that and I understand that. I, I, I also, um, a number other of people who I'm close with, it's, it's very, it's, and I think for most people it's very traumatic when they see these, these videos. But I love how you said just images because it's not just videos, right? It's also images. It's just um, one, of those, one of the images that I was going to put here around the three times was um, the medical examiner report, and I just like had had this moment where I, that was a lot, even for myself, even kind of a black and white sketch of somebody's body. But the number of entry and exit wounds is a lot, right? Um, I don't, I don't have an explicit stand because I feel like for some people it's important to see, and I sometimes wonder if I was this person's sister or mother, I would want you. I mean, I would want you to do what's best for you, and I think. People come in this from different ways. I think people have different triggers ab about what takes them to a place that they don't want to be. Um, so I don't believe that everybody should watch all these videos. I don't believe that everybody should engage in all of these images. Um, nor do I think that nobody should. Uh, 
I think it's I think it's complicated and it's created, like you said, a number of interesting problems, especially in this age of social media, right? Because it's it just it's 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 this twenty four hour like flood of information um, that we deal with all the time. I had some people after this past election become like feel like that they were just inundated um, with the images of Trump um, and just felt just very felt violated, felt powerless. Um, and I had a number of friends actually take a, take a day off of social media. Um, so I think there's different things for different people. But I think that I think one of the key things though is to be respectful of the way that other people engage. And I think that I love that people even think about that. Oh, okay. All right, I think that's. You sure? Now that I'm here, now we're here. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. That's good. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm not quite sure how to frame this question. I'm still formulating in my mind. Um, I guess I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the balance um, of a specific approach aimed at a certain issue. Like we've been talking about uh-huh. violence against black bodies when as opposed to an intersectional sort of holistic Uh approach um, because it seems like a lot of these issues, the kind of root of it is also the root of things like uh, gender inequality or disability justice. Uh And then certain ones, of course, have maybe more um, immediate pressingness Uh and and more history. Uh Um, So again, just kind of wondering at your thoughts as to the balance between like aiming at specific issues or aiming at all of them in a holistic way, if that makes sense. Again, still trying to. No, that's good. Um, so I think there's room for all of these issues. I think that we sell ourselves short, and we, I think we believe that people, this is, I think, part of one of the problems with, with 60s mainstream, 60s civil rights movement was that like, it's education and voting, right? I think Americans can deal with more than one issue that pertains to black folk in this country. Um, one of the things that I find really exciting actually about the Black Lives Matter movement is some of the coalitions that have been formed. Um, with in terms of um, activists around undocumented students and undocumented workers, right, in these immigration, not detention facilities, but in these, these jails, right? Um, I also think that there's been useful alliances that have also been formed um, with LG, LGBTQ communities as well around certain rights. Um, so I, do th- I think that there's space. I don't think that it means that we focus on one issue only. I do think that sometimes, you know, it is important to prioritize, but I do think in terms of the agenda and their space for a number of issues, whether they pertain to gender, whether they pertain to disability and mobility, I think that, I think that we can handle that, and I think that we should, right? And I also believe that understanding different forms of marginalization and inequality can help us inform our own kind of specific struggles that we maybe care about a bit more and about how to fight for them. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Megan Ming Francis is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Washington and the author of Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State. She gave this talk, Race and Violence in American Politics, at UW's Kane Hall on October 12, 2017.
2016. Thank you again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon.